Well, if you were here a year ago, you know mid-November was when we got the call. I was sitting in my office, and the phone rang. It was in the afternoon, and a uh, voice on the other end of the phone said, there's a cease and desist order tacked up on the outside of the barn. And my heart just sank. You know, five years of flying under the radar, and it's over. <laughs> and it was an official Island County cease and desist order. And I just love the fact that tonight we sit in the same barn less than a year later, and rather than having a cease and desist order, we have a temporary use permit tacked on the back wall. And it's something we were told was impossible, and yet God made it possible. Now, I don't bring this up again to be smug or to gloat, not at all. As a matter of fact, I don't even say it to be negative toward Island County because I fully believe that they were just doing their jobs. They were trying to follow through with whatever regulations they have. There was never a sense among any of us that they were after the church or that they were trying to put down Christianity, although I believe the enemy was. I believe the enemy still is. But the county is not the issue. Faith is the issue. And what we were privileged to watch over the last year is how, by faith, you trust God to do what He says He's going to do. The Sunday following the cease and desist order, we did not cease and desist. Because when the world cries, cease and desist, the Lord says, peace and success. When the world cries, cease and desist, the Lord says, peace and success. And I begin with this because, ironically, this is the very issue that Zerubbabel and Yeshua, the high priest, and the people of Israel, the exiles who have returned, this is the exact same issue they face in our story tonight. They get a cease and desist order. I wish I had realized this or thought about this before, a year ago, because we would have just skipped right ahead and gone right to Ezra to talk about this, this exact example in Scripture of what we ourselves were going through. It's ironic, it's amazing, but this very tactic of the enemy was employed against the exiles as they were trying to build the temple. In verse 1 of Ezra chapter 4, it says, When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, and the heads of the father's households. And they said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Asar Hadan, the king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Yeshua and the rest of the heads of father's households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building the house to our God. But we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Verse 4, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Mithridat, and Tabi'il, the ret and the rest of his colleagues wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the text of the letter was written in Aramaic and translated from Aramaic. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to king Artaxerxes as follows. Then wrote Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their colleagues, the judges, the lesser governors, the officials, the secretaries, the men of Iraq, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations, which the great and honorable Osnapper, <laughs> which is actually Ashurbanipal, the king, historically, maybe you've heard that name, I don't know how many have heard Osnapper, 
But they write to him, uh, the Honorable Osnapper deported and settled in the city of Samaria and in the rest of the region beyond the river. Doesn't that sound impressive? All those names, all these big names, and they've got their seal, and they've got their important roles of government, and they sit down and they write this letter, and they said to him, verse 11, to King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men in the region beyond the river, that's beyond the Euphrates River, the men in the region beyond the river, and now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute or custom or toll and it will damage the revenue of the kings. Now because we are in the service of the palace and it is not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor, therefore we have sent and informed the king, tattletales. So that a search may be made in the record books of your fathers, and you will discover in the record books and learn that the city is a rebellious city and damaging to kings and provinces, and that they have incited revolt within, within it in past days. Therefore, the city was laid waste. Well, we inform the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls finished, as a result, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. Well, then the king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and to the rest of their colleagues who live in Samaria. And, the rest, and in the rest of the provinces beyond the river, peace. And now the document which you sent to us has been translated and read before me. A decree has been issued by me. And a search has been made, and it has been discovered that that city has risen up against kings in past days, that rebellion and revolt have been perpetuated in it, that mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all the provinces, even beyond the river, and that tribute, custom, and toll were paid to them. So now, issue a decree to make these men stop work, that this city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Cease and desist. Beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. Why should damage increase to the detriment of the kings? Then as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem, to the Jews, and stopped them by force of arms. Then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased. And it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Cease and desist. This Artaxerxes writes up the order, has it sent out, and they are stopped dead in their tracks. You may not build this temple. They were held back. Gang, this is the enemy's campaign to undermine the work of God in Jerusalem. Satan does not want to see what he felt was wonderfully restored or, or built the first time. What, was, what he felt was wonderfully destroyed, he doesn't want to see it restored. Two things to note in this chapter. First of all, the letters address the pressure. The letters address the pressure. What do you mean letters? Well, there are two letters. We'll get to the second one in, in just a moment. And this is the first of two that we'll read were sent off to undermine the work of the exiles in Jerusalem. People there in Jerusalem and in the land trying to undermine the work, they send off two different letters. And as we talked about Sunday, rather than all-out warfare, the enemy often chooses to engage in subtle discouragement. Often the results are better. If he can discourage, rather than go head to head, rather than, than waste resources and efforts, the enemy will seek to discourage. Ephesians 6.11 
Paul wrote, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Yeah, I was reading through Ephesians 6 again this week and considering the language there and, and the picture and the spiritual warfare and, and how we're supposed to gear up. And I thought, you know, for those hawks among us, it's a great passage. Those warrior Christians who just want to fight, who are looking for a fight, bring it on, Satan, and they live in Ephesians chapter 6. But I think sometimes some of the more dovish among us read Ephesians 6, read all the armor and the implements, and they think, you know, I'm just not a fighter. I'm going to let Les pray through this. You know, I'm going to let somebody else put on the full armor. Because I'm, I'm a dove, and, and this other guy or this other lady, they're, they're hawkish. They can go ahead and fight and, and stand up. And, you know, I, I just, I'm just waiting for the rapture, man, and, and take me out of here and... The more gentle among us might tend to think that the armor isn't so much for them. Listen, if that's you, you need to understand something. The full armor of God is essential for every believer in Jesus Christ. There is not a one among us who does not need to be clothed, covered, protected by the armor of God. I don't care if you feel like you're engaged or not. You need that protection. You need the armor. You see, the devil is a schemer. Ephesians 6.11 tells us specifically the Greek word for schemes. We need to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The word schemes means crafty or wily plans. Well, we go through life and sometimes you know, we, we kind of lose track of things and we get off on the day-to-day. Satan is planning. He is scheming. He's looking two, three, four days down the line, two, three, four weeks or years down the line in your life planning how can he trip you up? How can he discourage you in your walk? How can he undermine any efforts that you might have to build into and for the kingdom? That word schemes, it's an interesting word in the Greek. It's methodia. It's where we get our word method. The method of the enemy. And Satan's MO, his method, involves more subtle discouragement, I think, than full-on assault. If we could run a graph over the last 2,000 years, yes, Satan attacks and he attacks hard and he assaults deeply, but... More often than not, if he can just discourage a believer, he has accomplished his work. Satan recognizes that the believer in Jesus Christ is sealed with the Holy Spirit. Satan recognizes, I believe, that we have grace and therefore we are saved. And so it's very difficult to undermine that. However, it is very easy to undermine the work of a follower of Jesus Christ. It is very simple to shut somebody up. Go ahead, be saved. Go off to your heavenly home. That's great. Just don't take anyone with you. And so he'll discourage the walk of faith. He'll make it hard for you. He'll give you one reason after another not to be involved in a fellowship, not to talk about Jesus. He'll make it difficult on you. And if Satan can sideline you, if he can knock the wind out of your sails, it's enough. We need the full armor of the Lord. You know, the bottom line, gang, is that Christianity is not good views. It's good news. It's not good views. It's not just an option. It's not just a lifestyle. It's not just a way some people choose to get through life and handle the tough stuff. It's not just good views. It's good news. It is eternity. And it is salvation. And once we have ours, and I've said this before, man, once we're saved, hallelujah, praise God. Now we have a job to do. Now it is our responsibility, our very call in life, to see other people saved. To be vocal about it. 
Not to worry about whether or not we offend or not, but to bring the message of the gospel of Jesus to a lost and dying and Christ-rejecting world. That is our call. That's why we're still here. Otherwise, we just go on home. Christianity is not good views. It's good news. And so we are called, Paul writes, Ephesians 6.13, to take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Ephesians 4.27, Paul said, don't give the devil any opportunity. Don't give the devil any opportunity. You know what, real quickly, would you just turn over to Ephesians chapter 6? I wasn't going to do this, but I think we need to. And you may have read this. You may have read it a number of times. But I want you to consider just briefly tonight the practicality of what Paul is laying out here. Of why it is so important for every person among us to be armed this way. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, Ephesians 6.10. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so you will be able to stand firm against the schemes, the methods, the methodology of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces, this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. It is Paul's contention and the Spirit's inspiration that you and I be fully armored and not have a single place that, the, that the Satan, the devil, can get in. Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. That's the belt of truth. It's what holds everything on. <laughs> the belt of truth. Are you surrounded by the truth? Do you surround yourself with truth? We're going to talk about this more on Sunday, but there is an absolutely practical day-to-day -day approach we can take to living in this world to be strong in the Lord. And it starts right here, being surrounded by truth. That is other believers who believe in the truth and support and encourage you in that. It's having the truth all around you. It is, it is calling upon the Spirit of the living God, who Jesus called, as we talked about Sunday, the Spirit of truth, to surround you at all times. It's doing what we sang about. Whatsoever is pure, true, praiseworthy. You know, think about these things, Paul says. Surround yourself with truth. But we sit down in the evenings and we turn on cable TV... And we are not surrounded by truth. We get a fire hose of lies and sin and filth and we cast it off as entertainment. But that's, that's what I'm talking about here. Are we surrounding ourselves with truth or are we taking in the lies? The belt of truth. Gird up your loins with truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness because the heart needs protecting, gang. How do you protect a heart? With righteousness, righteous deeds, righteous behavior, the righteousness of God poured out on you. That protection of the heart. Jesus said, the pure in heart will see God. And so, to have that pure heart, that single-heartedness, we need good protection there, the breastplate of righteousness. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Paul says, how, how wonderful are the feet of those who bring good news. You want to have nice feet? Be a gospel deliverer. Because as you go, you grow. The more you bring the Word of God to other people, the more you grow in strength. You know, I think about the, the, the Israelites, when they wandered 40 years in the wilderness, you know, it tells us that the soles of their shoes didn't wear out. 
The Lord protected them in that way so they could keep walking and keep moving. And if you walk with the gospel of peace on your lips, the soles of your feet will not wear out. You will become stronger, shod with the shoes of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. We're holding up faith. And that's the big issue for us is growing in our faith. Now, so that when the attack comes or the discouragement comes, my faith can stand firm against it. I'm holding that shield before me. He says in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. I like that. Why? Because we have to know that we're saved. It is the knowledge of your salvation that gives you strength to walk. John said in in 1 John, I believe chapter 5, that these things were written so that you would know that you're saved. I said before, it blows my mind that any Christian would walk around wondering whether or not they're saved. Now, if you have claimed Jesus Christ, you are saved. You have your salvation. So you can rejoice in that, and then you can grow up in it. And you can be about the business of God with the helmet of salvation that protects the knowledge of the truth that you are a saved person. And, of course, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, one of two offensive weapons that we have. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, with which we can fight. By the way, that... That word for sword is makaira in the Greek, which means dagger. You may have heard this before, but it's not like a long sword where you fight from far off. It is a small dagger where you fight up close. Sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the word there is rhema, which means the precise spoken Word of God. Which doesn't mean that you're just in the Bible and studying it, which you know how important that is. You know how much I believe in us being in the written word, the Logos. But the Rima is the spoken word of God, which means when you're in battle, you're in hand-to-hand combat. You've got to hear the Spirit. We need to be a people who are being trained to hear the Spirit speaking to us. How do we do that? Well, verse 18 opens that up with all prayer. And petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the, on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So prayer is the second offensive weapon that we have in that whole listing. This is so important, and I pause to go to this, and you can go back over to Ezra now. But discouragement will come. It has come in your life, has it not? Have you not had a time when you were discouraged? I mean, just the other morning of this week, I was driving to school, 6 o'clock in the morning, Taking hand in school and on the way home, every discouraging and depressing and negative thought was just entering my mind. And about halfway home, I said, man, I need coffee or something. And about three quarters of the way home, I went, I need the Spirit of the living God. And the moment I started to pray, the discouragement began to fizzle and go away. When I got into the Word, it disappeared. We are all discouraged from time to time. We will be. Sometimes just little ones. Sometimes because you didn't get enough sleep the night before, which was my situation. Or maybe you're not eating right. I mean, there are physical reasons why sometimes discouragement will come. But when it comes, how's your faith? And are you ready to stand against it? Gang, we need to gear up. The people of Israel needed to be geared up because they went back rejoicing 900 miles from Babylon. They go back to Judea and Jerusalem and they lay the foundation and they are praising God and it is good stuff. And they're, who among them is, reali- is realizing that the attack's on the way? 
And we will see through Ezra and Nehemiah this entire time that it is constant. The battle is constant against them. The negativity, constant. The discouragement, constant. And this letter to Artaxerxes, as I said before, it's one of two given as examples of the kind of hardship that would be faced by these exiles. It's not enough just to return to the land. You now have to be prepared to fight. And Daniel prophesied in Daniel 9.25 that Jerusalem would be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Ezra and Nehemiah are times of distress. These days in which we live, more and more, are times of distress. Distress and discouragement. So how do you survive it? You stand armored with the full armor of God. Now, this letter that, I, that we just read there in chapter 4, and the next one we're going to see are inserts in the text. Okay, this, this whole letter, in fact, from verse 8 of chapter 4 all the way to verse 18 of chapter 6 is written in Aramaic because it's a letter that Ezra, as he's writing this book, inserts it as an example of what was coming against them. He'll insert another letter later. But it's important to understand that in chapter 4, we're not chronological. We've just kind of stepped outside of chronology. And this helps explain a few things that might be confusing. Because even in the list of the kings here, it's, it's out of order. You see a letter going to Artaxerxes in chapter 4, and it's not until over in chapter, in chapter 5 and 6 that we see a letter to Darius. Well, Darius came before Artaxerxes. In fact, Cyrus was the first king of Persia, followed by Darius, and then followed after that by Cambyses and Smyrtus, and then Artaxerxes. So Artaxerxes is like fifth king down the line. But this letter is stuck in here. It's just an example of one that was sent, but Ezra, in writing the book, collects a couple of letters and says, let me show you what's going on. And it's pretty easy to see this. In fact, in verse 6 of chapter 4, if you go back and look at that, it says, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah, and Jerusalem. Skip down to verse 12. And he talks about it, the latter part of that verse, after saying to King Artaxerxes, he says, the rebellious and evil city are finishing the walls. Well, that wasn't happening under Ezra. They weren't building the walls. That doesn't happen until Nehemiah's time. The building of the walls is a Nehemiah gig. Ezra and the boys, actually, even before Ezra's here, Zerubbabel and Yeshua, their focus is the temple. They're not rebuilding walls. So you might read this and go, oh, it's a contradiction of Scripture. No, it's a letter that was stuck in as an example of the kind of stuff that they were facing. And that's why we see this here in, in this chapter. The letters address the pressure that the people were under. But there's one other thing I want you to see here in chapter 4 before we go on. And that is that the accuser addresses the past. Look at verse 15. They write, a search must be made in the record books of your fathers. And you will discover in the record books and learn that the city is a rebellious city and damaging to kings and provinces and that they have incited revolt within it in past days. Therefore, the city was laid waste. Look at verse 19. He writes back saying, a decree has been issued by me, Artaxerxes says, and a search has been made and it has been discovered that the city has risen up against kings in past days, that rebellion and revolt have been perpetuated in it. Here's the deal, gang. What they say in the letter to Artaxerxes and what he says in the cease and desist order that comes back is absolutely true. It's true. Jerusalem was a city of rebellion. You go back to the end of Chronicles and the last three, four kings. After Josiah, the rest of the kings were all rebellious. 
they all fought back and they all were undermining and they and they wouldn't you know they didn't pay attention to those who were who were in control over them so they were a rebellious they were a revolting lot the accusations are right on target this was a rebellious city and the people were stinkers against Nebuchadnezzar and other kings now the upside of of the fact that the Jewish people were stinkers were troublemakers were rabble rousers the upside is that this stiff-necked people with a stiff-necked nature are also quite tenacious I really think this and I, I don't mean to generalize and I certainly don't mean to um, you know to, to be negative toward Jewish people but I think there's a reality here that God gave the Jewish people a tenacious spirit I think there is something in the spirit of the Jew that says, I will not give in. I am not going to fold. I'm not going to give up. Only people group in all of history driven out of their land who remained a people group. It doesn't happen. Within 200 years of a people being driven out of their land, they no longer even exist as a people group. They get kind of you know, submerged into the groups into which they go. They take on new culture. They forget the past. The Jews never forgot. In over 1,800 years, they would not forget. They clung tenaciously to who they were and to who they are. They have a wonderful drive to survive. We saw it against the pharaohs of Egypt, against Nebuchadnezzar and the kings of Babylon. We see later in the Maccabees fighting against men like Antiochus, Epiphanes, the, the, the Seleucid dynasty, not to mention the pogroms of Eastern Europe and Russia, ultimately standing up even against Hitler himself. They never gave up. And as those six million Jews were being killed in the gas chambers of places like Auschwitz and Treblinka, Bergen-Belsen, even while that was going on, there were Jews making their way surreptitiously back to the land and fighting for independence in the land of Israel. And even today, they still have this defiant bent. Tell you what, Benjamin Netanyahu, he is one of my heroes. I like the guy. You might not. That's okay. I like the fact that he stands on truth and he refused to play to the media lies. He stands up and says, this is the deal. If no one is going to stand with Israel against Iran, Israel's going to stand. We are going to stand on our right to be in the land. They're a tenacious people. And again, whether you agree with them or not, you have to admit that across history, this people were tenacious and rebellious. So what is being said in this letter, it's absolutely true. Matthew 24, 34, Jesus said something we ought to take mind of. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now that's in the context of the parable of the fig tree. And many Bible teachers have said, and I've said this myself, and I, I think it, it could go one of two ways now. Many Bible teachers have said that this generation is the generation alive at the time that the fig tree, which represents Israel, begins to bud again. Which means 1948, Israel begins to bud. They come to back to life as a nation. That The generation alive that sees that, the generation will not pass away before Jesus comes again. And people put that as kind of a time signature on his return. But there's another option we need to address and understand. That the word generation there, genea, can mean a generation or a time span, but it also can mean a people. In which case, Jesus saying, this generation... My people, the Jews, will not pass away until all these things take place. What's he saying? 
I'm going to guard my people. They will not disappear from the earth. And by the way, they're pretty tenacious. And that's what we see in the Jewish people. So this letter to Artaxerxes, again, it speaks truth. They have been rebellious, but the letter itself is being spun against them because they're not in rebellion right now. Remember, they went back with, with the issued decree of Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia. They had the decree that said they could go and do exactly what they were functioning within their rights, within the law of Persia at the time. So they were not rebelling, and so the letter is now, though it goes back to the past to a rebellious time, it's being spun against them. And I'm pointing that out for this reason, gang. In our lives, the past has a way of catching up to us, doesn't it? And the enemy loves to dredge up that stuff. The enemy loves to pull up something just when you thought you'd gotten past it, just when you thought no one was going to find out what you used to do or who you used to be, or how you used to behave, somehow the enemy brings an old drinking buddy into your life again. Oh, I had forgotten, or I would shoved that out of my mind. Or, or, or the enemy brings someone who saw you and begins to speak about you, and he loves to go to the past, even if it's not what's going on today. He loves to dredge that stuff up. And listen to me, this is the beauty and the power of confession. This is practically why I believe the Lord says, I want you to confess your sins one to another. I want you to repent and come to me in confession. Listen, this, Sunday morning was great. We, we talked about the Samaritan woman and how Jesus spoke to her at the well. And um, one of our sisters came up to me and she was just bursting with excitement. Okay, it was Tabitha Gardner. She was so excited. And if you know Tabitha, you know that's not difficult for her. And she's like, I couldn't believe that you were talking about a Samaritan woman because, oh, we talked about that in our Bible study this week. It was fantastic because it like, all came together. It was like, oh, what are you talking about? You know, she just went on and on and I'm cracking up listening to Tabitha go on about this. But she said something that was profound. And I wanted to share it with you. After meeting Jesus, remember we talk about, we like to play this up, that the, the, the Samaritan woman was, went to the well when? At noon, when nobody was there. So that... All the mistakes and the sin, and you know, the five husbands, five divorces, now she's living with a guy, and so she goes at noon where no one's going to bug her about that, talk to her about that. What happens after she meets Jesus? She goes right into the middle of town and begins telling everybody what has just happened. Why? Once we know he knows, it doesn't matter who knows. Once she realized that this Messiah, if he is truly Messiah, he already knows about my entire life. I got nothing to hide anymore. So I can go back to the people and they can come out and they can tell Jesus, yeah, but did you know who you were talking to? Yes. As a matter of fact, I, I do. And she knows that I know. And now you know that we know that she knows that I know. We all know. So it's all out there. And once it's all out there, it can do you no more harm. You want to know what sin does as harm? Sin that's back there in the past? It's the secret sin that never got out. It's the stuff we're trying to hide. That stuff harms us. But when we confess openly, when we bring it to the Lord and to our brothers and sisters in Christ, it cannot hurt you anymore. It becomes diffused of its hold and its power. It will not be a problem for you. So I, I encourage you, if you have secret sin in your life, even now, confess it. Man, get it out there. We're all in the same boat. Is there anyone here who really thinks you're better than the rest of us? If so, would you please see me afterwards and we'll take care of that? 
Psalm 56.13 says, You have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. That's where we want to walk, in the light. In the light. Oh, you know that verse, 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light, that is openly, honestly, not hiding anything. This is just who I am. This is what I've done. Yes, I'm ashamed of that, but I am cleansed, washed by the blood. It no longer has hold on me. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And once we're clean, the old accusations, the old stuff, it's just not going to stick anymore. We don't have to worry about it. I've said this before. I'll say it a little differently. Next time Satan tries to dredge up your past, please feel free to dredge up his future. And if there's some secret sin that is holding you down, bring it to light. Brothers and sisters, confess it. Get it out there and join the ranks of free people who, like the Samaritan woman, are running into town with Jesus on their lips. Because now he knows. And I know he knows. And so I don't care if you know or not. (laughs) Now, in chapter 5, we're back on the chronological schedule here with another letter. This one is written against Israel to Darius, who was king at the time that we are in chapter 5. He's the king of Persia who followed Cyrus. But the Lord foresees all of this. He foresees both these letters. He foresees the discouragement. And so before we get to the letter, we're shown that he raises up two prophets. Verse 1, chapter 5. When the prophets Haggai and the prophet, uh, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel And Yeshua, the son of Yotzadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. I really like that little two-verse section there. Ezra points out something precious to us. These two prophets, Tagai and Zechariah, great prophets. We have their books, the two of the last three in in the Hebrew Scriptures. You have there in your Bibles. But they come along and both offer great messianic promises of the future. But that was not their immediate role. That was not what was the primary issue as they came to the people. It it matters for us. It would matter for Israel in later days. But right now, in this place in history, when the Jews are trying to build the temple, foretelling the future was not what, what was most important, but fortifying their faith. Fortifying their faith was what was needed. The exiles needed encouragement, and two prophets then are sent to carry them through. So you've got Haggai. He's the practical prophet. Now, if you go through and you read, and I would encourage you, by the way, as we go through Ezra and Nehemiah, take some time. Read Haggai and Zechariah, because you will see all the same names that we're studying and looking at right now in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And you'll see situations, and you'll get behind-the-scenes spiritual pictures of what's actually happening. We've looked at a few of those already. Read through those on your own time. But but check this out. Haggai is the practical prophet. He offers tangible, down-to-earth encouragement for the people to keep on building and to be righteous. This is the message of Haggai. Build the temple, man, and pursue righteousness, and let's... Be hands-on and practical and to the works. Get the job done. Haggai or Haggai chapter 1 verse 4, he says, It is time for you yourselves to... Is it time? Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? 
Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He's like, get to work, man. Let's just do the job. Now, Haggai is also the one who brings word of the first coming of Messiah. When he says in Haggai 7, chapter 2, verse 7 and verse 9, we've looked at these. I will shake the nations and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house, the second temple, with glory. Speaking of that first coming of Jesus. Even as a 12-year-old boy, he would grace the temple with his presence. He says, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than that of the former, says the Lord of hosts. In this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. So that's Haggai. He's practical, down to earth. Then you get Zechariah. His head's in the clouds. Zechariah, the poetical prophet. He saw great visions. We see in the book of Zechariah some fantastic and amazing pictures. Zechariah is the one who wrote in Zechariah 4.7, What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. And he will bring forth the top stone. That is the final, the finishing stone of the temple. He'll bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Now, Zechariah also speaks of the future. He speaks of the second coming. Not the first like Haggai does, but the second coming of Messiah in glory to establish his kingdom. He says in Zechariah 14, verse 4, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And on the Mount of Olives, it will, the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half will move toward the south. And in that day, verse 8 of Zechariah 14, living waters will flow will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea, and it will be in summer as well as it is in winter. And so they both give foretelling of the future. Both talk about, you know, Haggai, the first coming of Jesus, Zechariah, the second coming. But foretelling the future isn't the primary role here. It's fortifying faith. It is fortifying faith. That's why these two men are sent now to the people here in Jerusalem. Haggai says, get to work. The kingdom must be prepared. Zechariah says, I like this. Zechariah says, you've got grace because the king is coming. Haggai, get to work. The kingdom must be prepared. Zechariah, you've got grace because the king is coming. So with the ongoing encouragement of these two prophets, the people rise up and they get to building even in times of distress. And the indication is, even with cease and desist orders flying around, and I know the work was stopped at the time of Artaxerxes, but when Darius is, is in... Well, let's, let's just read about it. Verse 3 of chapter 5. At that time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shether Boltzani and their colleagues came to them and spoke to them thus... Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? Then we told them accordingly what the names of the men were who were constructing this building. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop until a report could come to Darius. They did not stop. I like that. Now, like when our cease and desist order was tacked up, we did not stop. There were some at the time that were a little concerned with that, by the way. They wondered, well, should we obey the law of the land? And if we have a cease and desist order, should we stop meeting? And we prayed about it. And we said, no. We know God called us to be here. And there is a higher law. Yes, we are called to obey the laws of the land. Unless they violate the call of God. Unless they go head to head with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the preaching of the truth. 
At that point, I will violate the laws to continue to speak truth. And we must follow Jesus first. I like this in verse 5. It says, The eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. We will see this over and over. The eye of their God was on them. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8 is where he says, He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. How would you like to be the Jews there in Jerusalem and hear that you are the apple of God's eye? Well, you are. You're the apple of his eye. I've heard the old phrase, and I, I love it, uh, God has his eye on you because he can't stop looking at you. He can't stop looking at you. These guys are fortifying faith. They're encouraging. They're building up. They're bringing the people closer to the Father. This phrase that the eye of their God was on them, it moves from eye to hand in several verses you're going to be hearing this fall. It's called providence, the Lord keeping watch over his precious flock. He is with you. Look at Ezra chapter 7. Skip ahead and look at verse 6 of Ezra chapter 7. It tells us the last part of the verse there, that the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Down in verse 9, it says, the good hand of his God was upon him. We just sang, I have seen the good hand of the Lord. I have seen the good hand of God. Skip on down to verse 28. It says, I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me. Over in chapter 8, verse 18, according to the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of insight. There in verse 18, verse 22, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him. Down in verse 31 of chapter 8, the hand of our God was over us. Go over to the book of Nehemiah. Very next book in the Bible, uh, chapter 2 and verse 8. Again, we see this phrase, the good hand of my God was on me. In verse 18 of Nehemiah chapter 2, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me. Why are you showing us this, Rick? Over and over and over and over. These people who are in distress and under the threat of discouragement recognize this great truth. The hand of God is on them. His hand is on their shoulder. His hand is on their hearts. His hand is on their heads and their spirits. His hand is on them. The good hand of the Lord is moving and will move. Hey, it's not our temple. Any more than this is our barn. It is not our building project on Troxel Road. It is the Lord's, and if His hand is in it, it will go forward. If His hand is in your life, you will stand with Him. If His hand is on this fellowship, it's going to grow and do what He's called it to do. The good hand of the Lord. The eyes of God upon me, the hand of the Lord rests on me. Well, back in Ezra chapter 5, verse 6, here's the next letter. This is the copy of the letter which Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Boltsanai and his colleagues, the officials, who were beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent a report to him in which it was written thus, To Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we have gone to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, which is being built with huge stones and beams are being laid in the walls. And this work was, is going on with great care and is succeeding in their hands. And then we asked those elders and said to them thus, Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names so as to inform you and that we might write down the names of the men who are at their head. And thus they answered us. So here's Zerubbabel and, and Yeshua and the people. Here they're answering. 
They answered us saying, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. I love that. Not just the God of Jerusalem, but the God, the God of heaven and earth. And are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. I love the honesty here. Hey, our fathers were messing up. That's true. That's what happened. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. Also, the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought them to the temple of Babylon, these King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon. And they were given to one whose name was Sheshbazar, and he was appointed governor, whom he had appointed governor. And he said to him, take these utensils, go and deposit them. We all know the story. We read it in the first three chapters. Deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem. Let the house of God be re rebuilt in its place. And then that Shetz Bazaar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. And from then until now, it has been under construction and it is not yet completed. Now, if it pleases the king, let a search be conducted in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon. If it be that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild this house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send to us his decision concerning the matter. In the meantime, as this letter is going back to Darius, and then Darius is going to give a response, and all this is going on, in the meantime, the people keep building. You do the same. You do the same. If a letter goes out, a letter of accusation, a threat that you must stop what you're doing, a push against what you're doing for the Lord, you keep going. You keep building. You don't give up. You remember, He is with you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 says, Since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. I mean, note the level of confidence. I, I love this. With these elders of Israel, as they reply and respond, they have no problem saying why they went into Babylonian captivity. No problem saying, look, we're, we are here, we're speaking truth, and we are serving the Lord, and we are building the temple. These guys are wearing the belt of truth. And that's what we're called to do, to tell the truth. We are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. That's the truth. So we have nothing to fear, nothing to hide, nothing to worry about. Wear the belt of truth. If we're walking in the truth, there's no need to fear the lies. But the lies can sound so convincing, can't they? You know, when someone speaks ill of you, what if someone believes them? It's so convincing when people lie. Gang, the spirit of truth has a way of bringing truth to light. John 16, 13, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then King Darius issued a decree, and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon, in Ekbatana. In the fortress, which is in the province of Media, a scroll was found, and there was written as follows. Memorandum. Now watch this, verse 3. In the first year of King Cyrus, 
Cyrus is the king issued a decree. Concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the temple, the place where sacrifices are offered, be rebuilt and let its foundations be retained, its height being 60 cubits, its width 60 cubits, with three layers of huge stones and one layer of timbers. And let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And let the gold and silver utensils from the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be returned and brought to their places in the temple in Jerusalem, and you shall put them in the house of God. Now, check this out. 300 miles from Babylon in a place called the House of Books. Great events were shaking the world and reshaping the future and an obscure little scroll is discovered which brings the truth of Cyrus's decree to light. I love that. The search was made in the archives or literally the House of Books where the treasures are stored in Babylon. One single scroll written by Cyrus tucked away, and while the earth is shaking and there are world-changing global events going on, big stuff is hitting the headlines right now at this point, and this tiny little scroll is discovered and pulled out and opened up <laughs> to bring the truth to light. What are the odds? I mean, wouldn't you think in that day and age that it would be more likely that this scroll, out of how many decrees would Cyrus give? How many decrees would all these kings give? And yet this little scroll was discovered. This one tiny scroll concerning the woe-begone people in a seemingly insignificant little backwater region of Judea. And yet it was found truth to light. The truth comes to light. Never forget the zeal of the Lord will accomplish all his plans and oftentimes he stacks the cards against himself so that our faith will be encouraged by it. By the way, 500 years later in another out of the way place, great global events commanded the headlines again, but another decree was made. Luke chapter 2 tells us that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now listen, gang, back in those days, names like Augustus and Quirinius were the big names in the news. But it was the first census taken, and Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. It was then and there a decree was given for the house of bread, <laughs> Bethlehem, that insignificant place, and truth was born in the flesh. I think the Lord enjoys bringing truth up out of the most unlikely of places. Well, verse 6, Now therefore, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shether Batsanai, and your colleagues, the officials of the provinces beyond the river, keep away from there. This is Darius' encouragement. You leave them alone. Stay away from Jerusalem. Do not bother them in the temple. In other words, don't mess with Israel. I love the t-shirt. You can buy it in Jerusalem. You can buy it all over Israel. It's got an Israeli fighter jet on it, and it says, Don't worry, America, Israel stands with you. <laughs> <laughs> don't mess with Israel Darius did his homework he found the scroll he reads it he understands but Darius also knew something else he knew there was something remarkable about this God of the Jews how would he know that well Darius knew a particularly faithful Jew named Daniel 
Darius is the one who, against his own desire and wishes, threw Daniel into the lion's den because of a decree that he had signed that he was tricked into signing. He did not want to sign it. But the next morning, Darius runs to the, to the den where the lions are and shouts down there, hoping against all odds that Daniel might still be alive and the lions hadn't completely torn him limb from limb. Daniel, are you there? Sup? Things are good. And they pulled Daniel out of there. It is Darius who writes the following in Daniel chapter 6, verse 25. May your peace abound. Darius the king wrote to all the people's nations and men of every language who are living in the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. He is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on the earth who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. No wonder Darius, when they wrote to him, said, leave him alone. Let him be, man. Their God shuts the mouths of lions. Chapter uh, Verse 7. He says, leave this work on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for these elders of Judah in the rebuilding of this house of God. The f- <laughs> this is, cracks me up. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces beyond the river and that without delay. <laughs> what? Whatever is needed, both young bulls and rams and lambs for a burnt offering to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and anointing oil as the priests in Jerusalem request, it is to be given to them with uh, delay uh, daily without fail that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And I issued a decree that any man who violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn from his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a refuse heap on account of this. <laughs> That's serious business. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it so as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this decree. Let it be carried out with all diligence. So, what this is saying is the government of Persia paid out of its treasuries for the rebuilding of the temple of the Jews. Is God awesome or what? Not only was Satan's plan to discourage them thwarted, but now the government is paying for the Jewish people to build the temple. I think about this. For those who are in the, in the services, the Navy personnel, you realize God, that our government is paying you to be missionaries? What a great place, what a great profession to take the word of God all over the world because the government is paying for you to be everywhere. And so you go all over the world... Speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ, touching lives, you're there two or three years, you leave, we're bummed, but we have grown because of you. The government pays for it. Man, let that sink in. Can you imagine Persia today, Iran, paying for the Jews to rebuild their temple? (laughs) Well, of course they wouldn't do that today. They wouldn't have done it back then either had God not put his hands on the people. It would not have happened. It is absolutely ridiculous, but God does it. By the way, (laughs) speaking of Persia, Iran, did you read this in the news this week? I I think this is fascinating. Ahmadinejad's original last name may very well be Jewish. (laughs) Apparently, before his father moved their family to Tehran, 
They changed their name. It was originally Saborgian. And Saborgian is a Persian Jewish name. It is a very Jewish name. It means in Hebrew, cloth weaver. Oh, he denies it, of course. But perhaps, Mahmoud, I'm in a jihad. Perhaps this guy, Ahmad genocide, is, is himself like Hitler was before him having Jewish blood running through his veins. Possibly. My point is this. The Lord has a profound way of turning the hand of the enemy to bless his people. Even those who you would least expect. How do we turn the tables on the enemy? I want to get in on that. I mean, I I really like that. I, I was so encouraged just watching how not only did they allow them to continue building, but they paid for it. I want some of that action. I want to know how we, in this day, as followers of Jesus Christ, turn the tables on the enemy. How do we do that? I think there's a simple answer. Remember what we read earlier that Zechariah prophesied about Zerubbabel. He said in Zechariah 4.7, What are you, great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace. Grace to it. Grace to it. What do you mean? What's this prophecy? It means that when the temple is finished and all the people can see it and the wonderful glory of it and the fact that Zerubbabel, the governor, he was in on that and led the building project, when that final stone is laid that the people would say, Grace, it is because of God's grace. This temple stands because of the mercies, the loving kindness, the chesed in the Greek uh, or in the Hebrew of the Father. That never-ending, undeserved favor of the Lord. Grace is the method by which the Lord turns the tables on the enemy. Watch this. Turn over to Zechariah. We're going to finish there. Zechariah at the end of the Old Testament. In chapter 3. Because the Lord also had a prophecy through Zechariah for Yeshua the priest. And it's one that you just have to see. Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1. Then he showed me... Yeshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Remember, we, we read that verse on Sunday. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord has chosen, who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now watch this. Now Joshua, or Yeshua, this is the high priest, was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He, that is the Lord, spoke and said to him who was standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. And then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they clothed them with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And that is it. Grace. Grace to it. This is a picture, gang, of you and of me. For when the enemy comes along to discourage, when he accuses us, when he dredges up all that past failure and old sins, all we have to do is apply grace to it. Grace. Grace to it, man. You want to tell me about what I've done? I no longer wear those filthy garments. I am clothed in robes of celebration now. The high priest, Yeshua, like us, was standing there, pictured before the Lord in nothing but filthy rags. And God changed his clothes, which is something that Satan would not have expected. You see, Satan doesn't get it. Satan's a legalist. He looks at the righteousness of God and he says, Oh man, no one can be that good. 
And that's how I'm going to get him. I'm going to tell everybody that you can't be that good. He never expected the Lord to turn around and say, grace, grace to it. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And that phrase, filthy garment, you Bible students, you know what the phrase really means. And if you don't know, come ask me afterwards and I'll tell you. That's what we're like. But Isaiah 61.10 tells us, He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. But there's more. The Lord inextricably links this cleansing to the one who would come and make a perfect cleansing afterward. Look at verse 6. And the angel of the Lord admonished Yeshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access from among these who are standing here. Now, Listen, Yeshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are assembled for behold. I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. I'm going to bring the branch. The branch. Now, who could that possibly be? The branch is the Hebrew prophetic name for Messiah. I am bringing Messiah. You want to know how this high priest Yeshua goes from filthy rags to clean garments? Because I'm bringing Messiah. I'm bringing the branch, Jesus Christ. The high priest, this Yeshua, actually kind of portends Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, in more than just a name. Zechariah 6.12, Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. But it's not talking about this second temple. He is now prophesying the future, a temple, the millennial temple, that Jesus himself will oversee the building of. This Yeshua did build the second temple, but he's just a type of the coming Yeshua who will build the final temple. It's just amazing to me how God does this and how he lays this all out for us. And so as we finish up here, gang, the Lord did the one thing Satan could not even imagine. He turned the tables of evil by turning disgrace into grace, by applying grace to it. The enemy will discourage. The enemy will dredge up the past to cause you to stop laboring for the gospel. But remember, even as the world cries cease and desist, the Lord says peace and success. Back there in Ezra chapter 6, it tells us, Then Tatanei, verse 13, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shether, Botsanai, and their colleagues carried out the decree with all diligence as King Darius had sent, and the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo, and they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. This temple was completed. On the third day of the month of Adar, it was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius and the sons of Israel the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Let's pray. Father, it is with great encouragement that we read this story tonight. And we consider the attempt of the enemy to undermine, to cause a cease and desist, to send out these letters, to dredge up the past, to discourage, to dishearten. All the while, Father, we see you applying grace. Grace to it. 
Lord Jesus, it is your grace that we praise you for and thank you for. It is your grace that gives us motivation, encouragement, a desire to stand and to build. It is your grace. And we praise your name and ask that you will apply your grace to our hearts tonight. Remind us once again that we are not the disgraced sons of the world, but we are the graced sons and daughters of the King. In Jesus we pray. Amen. We'll finish up uh, chapter 6 on Sunday morning. God bless you all. Oh yeah, yeah. I actually got an email from the mouse. Oh okay. About that, yeah. They they told Cal about that, which that's so cool. I, I told them uh, we kind of discovered that right before they left that um, 